Bible there and the pages 1090. And we're reading from uh, chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the woman and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field where he fell headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, May his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was first taken up from us. Sorry, when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, and also Justice, uh, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the eleven apostles. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Hope Church. In 1996, I was a very young student at the Bible College of New Zealand. A very young student, I might say. And about three months into our term at Bible College, one of our beloved lecturers, Sheila Pritchard, was taken critically ill. She had a brain tumor. And uh, she was loved by all of the students, especially the senior students. She was in critical care and her brain was bleeding from this tumor. There was, there was a real question mark about whether she would survive or not. And the senior students, including my own wife, called the, the college community together and said, we need to intercede and we need to pray for Sheila. And that's what we did. We joined together that evening and we interceded. And really, it was my first experience of a church community coming together in unity, in real unity, and interceding uh, for somebody in, whose health was in danger. And God wonderfully answered our prayers, and Sheila's still living to this day and still ministering in his name. 
One of the dominant themes in both Luke's gospel and in the book of Acts, which we're journeying through, is the apostles' commitment to prayer. Uh, Luke records it 78 times. There's this reference to prayer. There's no other book in the New Testament that comes close. I think Matthew is the closest, which has 18 references to prayer. So it's clear that for Luke, he really wants to emphasize the importance of prayer. And it's also clear from the reading that you just heard read to us that the apostles took seriously their commitment to prayer. As we heard read, they were joining together constantly in prayer. So my question to you this morning is, how important would you say your prayer life is? How important would you say your prayer life is? And a related question, and it's a different question, is how active is your prayer life today? Now, I don't ask you that question to uh, invoke some form of response out of guilt, because guilt is no motivation for prayer. Do you know what the best motivation for prayer is? It's our motivation of love. And so would you join with me as we pray together and allow God's word to speak to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of prayer. And we thank you for this invitation to draw closer to you. And as we sit under your words, uh, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would minister the truth of this word to our hearts. Humble our proud hearts, strengthen our timid hearts, heal our broken hearts, that we might know Jesus, and in his name and for his glory we pray. Well, last week, for those of you who tuned in or were here, we heard of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, how before their very eyes, the apostles saw Jesus ascend into heaven, and the two angels dressed in white said, right are you folks, it's now time to stop your gaze heavenward and to focus on your ministry here on earth. Verse 12 begins, and then the apostles returned to Jerusalem. From the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. And those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. It's a wonderful walk, the walk from the Mount of Olives down past the Garden of Gethsemane and into Jerusalem. And as the text says, it's about a Sabbath walk, which is about a kilometer. It's, it's less than 20 minutes, probably, stroll that they take. Halfway down the hill on the Mount of Olives is a cemetery, the Jewish cemetery, and all the graves align towards the Temple Mount. They're waiting for the Lord's return for the general resurrection when they will be raised to life. But of course, as the apostles wander down that hill, they would have walked past the Garden of Gethsemane. I have no doubt as they walked past the Garden of Gethsemane, they would have been reflecting on those few weeks earlier when they saw their Lord passionate in prayer, praying beads of blood as he cried out to his father, take this cup away from me, but not my will, but yours be done. And then they continue on into, the, into Jerusalem and Luke records that they end up in an upper room. 
He doesn't describe or he doesn't articulate exactly what that upper room was. It could have been the room where they gathered uh, for that last supper with the Lord Jesus. It could also potentially have been the mother of John Mark's room, which Luke references later in the book of Acts. But they gather to pray and they are united in prayer and they are devoted in prayer. Luke records the 11 apostles who are remaining there. Significantly, the order of the apostles are slightly different from when he records them in his gospel. And now we find that it's Peter and John who are leading the apostles. The familial ties of the two pairs of siblings of Peter and Andrew and James of John are broken up, and now the ties are the kingdom ties. And so they head to this upper room and this prayer meeting of the early disciples. And Luke records two marks of this, of this prayer meeting. Firstly, the mark of unity, they are together. And secondly, the mark of dedication, they are constantly praying. Literally, we could translate verse 14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. It's the same word that Luke uses later in chapter four when he talks about the believers being devoted to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship and prayer. Here, the apostles are devoted in their prayer life. And of course, remember, they're waiting for the Spirit. They're waiting for the Spirit, the the promised gift that Jesus said he would send from the Father. So notice those two marks, the mark of being united, praying with one mind, and being dedicated, persevering in prayer. I wonder if this describes the type of prayer life that you would be engaged in today. Verse 15, the verses carry on, and then in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and he said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as a guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong. His body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language Al-Kadama, that is, field of blood." For said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. So we find 120 believers are gathered together in this upper room, a good size for a church, but significantly it's also the legal number for a Jewish gathering to establish their own council, their own governing council. And so they gather and they pray. And Peter takes the lead. He's been, of course, reinstated by the Lord Jesus to feed his sheep. And he takes that leadership role here in verse 16. He said, brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas. Now we're going to come to the tragic account of Judas in a moment. But let me just touch on that verse. And in particular, the connection that Peter makes between the word of God and the spirit of God. 
One of the, the joys I think we're going to discover as we journey, journey through the book of Acts is the way that Luke unites the ministry of the Word of God and the ministry of the Spirit of God in the Apostles' life and in the life of the early church. We'll see time and time again how the Word of God spreads throughout the land. And we'll learn time and time again how the Apostles are filled with the Spirit of God to preach that Word. Any church that I lead, in fact, I want to suggest that any church that's being faithful to God will never divide and never put a wedge between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Notice, my friends, that the Word of God had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke. Word and Spirit intimately connected. It was true in creation. It was true, of course, in the life of Jesus in his death and resurrection, and it will be true at his return. And it must be true in the life of the church. It must be true in your life, the ministry of the word and the spirit, if we are to flourish. I sometimes think of uh, Christians, if they tend to focus on one or the other, they're like a hand that's had their wings clipped. One of their wings clipped and they cannot fail, they cannot fly. A few years ago, I had some friends that shared a couple of hens, and we had to look after them for a few weeks. And uh, sadly, we went out to see them, and they hadn't had their wings clipped, and they could fly. And off they flew into Mornington, and we didn't see one of them for about 10 days. I took them back, and I clipped one of their wings, and they could no longer fly. It's a bit like that if you're trying to live the Christian life, if your focus is just on the Word without the Spirit, or if your focus is just on the spirit without the word, you're like a hen that's got a clipped wing and cannot fly. The passage that Peter references, he speaks of, is Psalm 41.9. He said, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. And so he describes through the word of God how the spirit spoke of the tragic betrayal of Judas. It's such a significant moment in time, it's perhaps unsurprising that how frequently and strongly the New Testament authors and Jesus himself references how this was foretold in Scripture. Peter does it here, but in John's Gospel, Jesus does it explicitly. And I want to turn to John 13 to describe how that betrayal unfolded. John 13, verse 18, we read the following. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. But I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And after he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. And he testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it's the one whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, 
And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Now most of you will be familiar of the terrible tragedy as it unfolds after this point. How Judas, one of the 12, who had had responsibility as the treasurer, and even before this possession of the devil took place at that moment, the scriptures record of his greed, of his deception, and for a price of 30 pieces of silver, Judas colludes with the chief priests and he betrays Jesus. He does it with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane of all places. 30 pieces of silver. And so he sets in motion the terrible train of the arrest, of the mocking, of the trial, of the humiliation, of the beating, ultimately of the crucifixion of the Son of God. Judas awakens to the depravity of his evil, but he awakens too late. He tries to give the money back to the chief priests. In fact, he throws it back at their feet and they are unconcerned. 30 pieces of silver. Significantly, it is the price of a Hebrew slave as recorded in Exodus 21.32. For the price of a Hebrew slave, Judas betrays the son of God. And confessing to the guilt-stained priests, he says the following, I have sinned for I have betrayed innocent blood, Matthew 27, 4, and they are completely unconcerned. They spurn Judas in his own guilt and regathering the blood money, they buy the reference field of blood. Back in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, it is recorded in Peter's words, with the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field and there he fell headlong, his body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language Al-Kadama, that is, field of bloods. Matthew 27 records how this tragic unfolding is the fulfillment of prophecies both in Jeremiah and in Zechariah. Now this tragedy may ask and raise some questions in your own minds. If this was prophesied, if this was the word of God being fulfilled, where does this leave Judas in terms of his own guilt? The New Testament, as Peter here is explicit, are unanimous in their condemnation of Judas. In verse 25, the ominous phrase describing how he left his apostolic ministry to go to where he belongs is a clear reference to his eternal destiny in hell. It's also a clear indication that he chose this destiny that he was in charge of his own destiny at this point. Let me just say, the sovereignty of God never forces a man's hand. The sovereignty of God never forces a man. He gives us the opportunity to choose life or to choose death, and Judas chose death. Scripture from the beginning to the end, from the garden to the heavenly city, God graciously maintains our human dignity, giving us the power to choose. Joshua puts it so eloquently in Joshua 24. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your forefathers, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Judas chose death. He chose his eternal destiny, a separation from God. Let me plead with you this morning. Do not turn your back on the grace of God. Choose life. 
For God's purposes will not be thwarted by any corrupted heart. God's purposes were not thwarted by Judas's corrupted heart. And so the text continues on with the replacement of Judas, of the chosen apostolic team. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in it. And may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us. The whole time the Lord Jesus was living with us, beginning with John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up for us. For one of us, for one of us must become a witness with us to his resurrection. And so they nominated two men and then the replacement takes place, the replacement of Judas. Of course, it's no accident that Jesus chose 12 apostles to follow him. They're a direct link to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now they are the 12 tribes united under the Messiah, united under the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said the following in Luke 22, chapter, uh, verse 28. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink in my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so they set about replacing the 12th apostle. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go to where he belongs. And then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias, so he was added to the 11 apostles. Interestingly, it's the last reference to the casting of lots in Scripture. Significantly, it takes place before the giving of the Spirit. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, what is it that the Lord would say to us from this passage this morning? What would God's Word and God's Spirit say to us this morning? I want to suggest two questions and one promise. The two questions, are you serious about prayer? And is your life formed by the word and the spirit of God? And the promise is that God's purpose will never be derailed. Let's firstly consider that first question. Are you serious about prayer? Are you serious about prayer? Are you devoted to prayer? Are you united in prayer as we find the apostles are united and devoted in prayer? And you might ask yourself the question, what does it mean to be devoted in prayer? I think far too many of us live our lives thinking that prayer is this journey in our head where we're offering our shopping list to God and getting our answers. The prayer of the apostles of the book of Acts is much deeper, much richer. God is ultimately inviting you into a relationship. That's the great gift of the new covenant. In Christ, we now have access to enter into a relationship with our Father our Heavenly Father, through the ministry of the spirits. On Thursday, Mary and I took a night out and we headed off for a wee birthday treat for Mary. We headed off to Hotel St. Clair and uh, we spent about 15 hours just away from the routine and investing in our relationship. Prayer's a bit like that. 
It's about investing in your relationship. It's about investing in your relationship of love with your heavenly father. Are you serious about prayer? And let me say, let me remind you, God sees our hearts and he's inviting us into a relationship of prayer with him. Secondly, is your life formed by the word and the spirit of God? Because God shapes your life through those two agents. Is your life being shaped by the ministry of the word and the ministry of the spirit? It's so easy, as I mentioned earlier, to to focus on one at the exclusion of the other. The New Testament witness never forms a divide between the word of God and the spirit of God. Is your life being formed by the word and the spirit of God. And thirdly, let me remind you that God's purpose is never derailed. God's purpose is never derailed. Even the deepest, darkest, most sinful expression of humanity as Judas Judas betrays the son of God. God's sovereignty is never derailed. His plans and his purposes are never derailed. As we sang earlier this morning, what was meant for evil, God uses for goods. You see, God sees your heart, God shapes your heart, and God's will is done. And so he invites us to draw near in prayer. Let me offer you this wonderful definition of prayer from the Russian believer Theophan before we pray together. To pray is to descend with the mind into the heart and there to stand before the face of the Lord, ever present, all seeing within you. Let me say, let me share that again. To pray is to descend with the mind into the heart and there to stand before the face of the Lord, ever present, all seeing within you. Let's bow our heads and our hearts and come into prayer with our loving Heavenly Father. God of all grace, as we sit and as we bow before you now, we thank you for the truth of this word. Lord, we thank you that your plans and your purposes are never thwarted. We thank you for the ministry of your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the gift of your spirit that we now sit under And Lord, we ask that you would continue to shape our lives into the likeness of Christ. And Lord, like those apostles, would you by your love reveal to us what it means to be united and committed and devoted in prayer? Would you invite us by your love into that amazing relationship where we journey from our head to our hearts, where we see you dwelling by your spirit now and shaping us into the likeness of your son. Lord, we thank you that your plans and your purposes are never thwarted despite the shadows you find in our hearts. You're transforming us. You're shining your light in there. And so I pray for each and every one of us Lord, I pray that you would minister your grace, minister your love, that we might have that same heart, united and devoted, growing in our relationship with you, Lord. We ask this and we seek this for your glory and for the extension of your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, Stu. Let us stand.